Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good afternoon. How are we doing on this rainy day? Are you nervous or excited for a whiteboard on a rainy day? I don't want to put you to sleep, okay? So are we good? We can keep the coffee cart going if you guys got to take a quick pit stop in the middle to go get some. Let me know. Um, hey, well, I'm glad you guys are here. My name is Trey, and uh, we're going through Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and it's just been a great time. And uh, so we're going to continue going through it. And I'd love to start off with just a great little story about high school Trey. Um, yes, everybody loves a little glimpse into my high school years. Except me, but you know that's what happens when you're up here. So, uh, when I was in high school, um, transi- transitioning from middle school to high school, I had a group of friends that I wouldn't say were the greatest influence. I don't know if anybody has had that experience in your life, where you look back and you're like, "Wow, those people were so bad. Why did I hang out with them?" Uh, typically, it's because we're insecure and we would rather have anyone than no one, right? Um, but I can distinctly remember this 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 vivid imagery like it's just kind of ingrained in my head. Um, there was one of my friends who was just not a healthy kid and happened to have a Mercedes, which in high school in hindsight what you know um, and and also loved to drive very fast, which just are two very just not good things together in high school. And I can just remember like there were times where you know we'd have soccer practice or, or we, we when we did tennis there was practice was a little bit after school, and so there was like this, this gap period you had to fill, which as a high school boy, what do you do for 35 minutes? You go to Taco Bell, right? So we go to like Taco Bell every day, and I would drive with this, this uh, friend of mine all the time because I didn't have a car yet, and I was too young. And I just remember this time we were on the highway one time, and we were going like 135 miles an hour on the highway. And I'm in the back seat. Yeah, I'm in the back seat. And this would happen frequently in his other car. He had an Eclipse before this, and he would only go like 100 in that one. But uh, and this Mercedes, we're going 130 miles an hour, and he's like smoking a cigarette, and I'm sitting in the back, and I'm like, this is how my life is going to end, with this guy in front of me driving, uh, you know, of course, he's like, oh, I'm so safe, you know, like, and I'm like, who, everyone says that, no one's like, I'm terribly unsafe, and I'm going to go 130, like, nobody says that, and I just remember in that moment, like, so mad, because, you know, in some ways, I, I made excuses, like, well, like, I don't have a choice, like, I need to ride, like, this is what I, I I was mad at myself, but then I was also mad that I didn't have the ability to be like, you know what, forget it. I'm just not going to put up with this. You know, like, I'm just not going to ride with this guy. Because I can remember yelling at him, being like, dude, this is not worth it. Like, this isn't even fun. Like, it's not, like, go ride a roller coaster, right? Like, you can go with Glenn, right? You can go ride the roller coaster. Like, it's not worth it. And, and I, I have that ingrained in me because I think that was a moment where I realized, wow, like, the people that I'm around could literally kill me. And I, I don't know if you felt that. Maybe in your life you have, where you've had a crazy night with people that just... You thought we were friends, and to be honest, didn't really care about you, and you could have died, or it could have had ser- something serious happen, or whatever it may be, right? To me, I legit felt like I'm going to die, and the only re- reconciliation I had was, we're going so fast that I probably won't even know when it happens, but I realized, you know what, from now on, like, I, there, there's a sense of, of ownership that I need to take in realizing that I, whether I like it or not, will become who I hang out with. And um, now, I did not become a speed racer. <laughs> Um, but I, I think I started to realize that I became much more selfish because I didn't really care. Like, if people hung out with me, they chose to hang out with me. I could do whatever I want. I didn't need to be selfless. And so many of you maybe have had, like, you've had this crowd of people that you've hung out with. And I, I think sometimes as, as humans, we forget how, 
how um, consumed by people around us that we can get. I mean, it's the reason why like fashion trends are a thing. It's the, the reason why cargo shorts were in style for so long, right? Or, uh, or Crocs are somehow like still in style. Um, or it's the reason why you can be a fan of a football team or of a school or or it's the reason why you like a certain restaurant or not, right? Like, it, we are so inundated in influence, and we have no idea how susceptible we are to be influenced in ways that affect much deeper than we realize. Uh, and so today, Jesus is giving us this picture of letting us know how, how deeply flawed and how deeply consuming we are of the things and the people around us. And so we're in Matthew 9 today. This is, uh, this is just finishing, uh, last week we talked about this crazy story where these guys that were good friends, great community, tore the ceiling off of a house just to get this guy who couldn't walk one of their friends down to Jesus so Jesus could heal him. And we talked about that story, and it was this radical idea of not only can Jesus physically heal us, but he can spiritually heal us. He can forgive us of our sins, and that's so much greater than just the physical healing, right? I don't know about you, but I mean, would you rather walk around with a perfect body but be far off from God or be with God and have an issue with your body. And, and I think that's the question that we see in these healings is the reality of the healing is just a moment or a temporary glimpse on, in, in light of humanity for your soul. And so if you can walk on earth, cool, but that's just a very small glimpse of humanity or of eternity in your life. And so Jesus is, is revealing this kingdom and this kingdom is full of, of just the good that he provides. And... Um, Last, last week when we talked about that, we had good friends. This week, we're going to have people that are not so good. And I think that the tension that comes into this story that we're going to read is, is really dealing with just what do we think of community? What is community? And I think the biggest question that we have to ask ourselves is what kind of community is Jesus creating? What kind of community is Jesus creating? Because he's around so many different people, people that, that hate other people that he's around, people that no one likes, people that everyone likes, and he's, he's growing fame and crowds and popularity. But what is he? I mean, it, just because you show up somewhere and thousands of people show up for you doesn't mean that you were directly responsible for who showed up or not, right? But it's what you do with that influence, those people. So when we read the story of Matthew's painting this portrait, what kind of community is Jesus trying to create? And so here's what, I want to give you a little bit of my experience, and maybe this resonates for some of you. If you didn't grow up in the church, I would still be able to bet that you probably have like seen this from a distance. But in, in, in church, you know, you kind of have this, oh, I'm a Christian. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christian community? Typically, it means that, you know, you're here, and there's these kind of walls, right? And there's things you do, and there's things you don't do. And, like, if you have Christian friends, well, they're all inside this, this with you, which means that they're, they're all agreeing to this set stead of, uh, set, set stead? Wow, I'm studying there. This set set of beliefs <laughs> where... <laughs> Where, well, where um, you're all agreeing on the same thing. So whether it's like doctrine, meaning you have the same beliefs about God, or whether it's these smaller things, or, or, or these like life principles, these ethics, the teachings that you believe. And really, it's, just, it's basically like this, right? You're in, and then you have other people who are out, but it's very clearly obvious who's in or out, because these walls are very clearly defined. So for instance, like when you walk into Costco, I don't know if you realize this, but if you get 20 feet into the story, store, everyone there has, are, is a member. They couldn't have gotten in there unless you're really sneaky, without a Costco ID. Like, they will not let you in there. Um, unless you try to tell them, like, oh, I got to pick up a pizza or something. But most times, they don't let you. And so when you're in there, you know, oh, everyone here has either paid or somehow has a membership that allows them to be in here. This is how this feels, which is very comforting, because you know that when you're in here, everyone around you is agreeing to the same 
the walled statutes, the bullies, whatever, of this community. Now, the problem is, is that for hundreds of years, the church has been operating in such a way that these walls seem to change a lot, right? There's certain principles, like I would say the Christian church in general believes in Jesus and what he's done on the cross, and that's a very big tenet of the Christian faith. That's what makes us Christians. But then all of a sudden, we start to disagree on little things, and then we start to make these walls. And then before you know it, there's like 80,000 denominations, right? And I grew up in one where, you know, you wore, you know, khakis on a Sunday. I don't know if Allison remembers this, but I remember being little. I had to wear khakis. That was like, you had to, you had to dress nice. If you didn't present your best, you didn't care. Like, it wasn't, you weren't worshiping God, right? Or it was like, ooh, if you drink alcohol at all, like, you, good luck, right? Or if you have a tattoo, well good luck, get some of that laser removal, you know, I mean, you're in trouble, right? It was like all these things where, to be honest, as I remember as a middle school and high school, these were the things I remember more about than just Jesus and what he called me to. I could tell you more about what I shouldn't do that had really nothing to do with, like, the community that Jesus is creating than this. And so, now, there are bigger things that we create sides on, right? But what this is typically rooted in, the problem with this, and the problem is you probably hated it when you grew up or you've noticed it, you've felt this raw nerve, is that it's really rooted in fear. It's rooted in the ability to want to try to create your own comfort zone. This is literally a zone <laughs> of comfort. And if you're here with other people, one, it means you're not crazy because there's other people in here that are also agreeing to the same things. But it's easy to ostracize the people who are outside because so-and-so, so-and-so drinks beer or so-and-so has a tattoo and it's not a Bible verse. Like, you know, you can easily just be like, well, they're sorry, they're out, okay? Now, here's what happens in the Old Testament, okay? is a very similar thing, okay? The Old Testament, God actually does create rules, okay? And he creates these specific rules that allow them to be clean within God because we know that if we are sinners, we're blemished, we can't be within, within the presence of a holy God. So he creates these very clear rules, and then he creates basically fail-safes, which is when they screw up, they can atone for those screw-ups, those sins, so that they can continue to be in his presence. And so he writes out all these laws. It's a very long part of your Bible. I'm not gonna read it all now. <laughs> but he creates all these laws, and, and, then, and then he's like, this is how you access me, right? Is like in the Holy of Holies and this all this process. And then what happens over hundreds of years, humans ruin it. And what they do is the Pharisees, which are the religious leaders, which are going to be in this story, create another wall outside of that wall because they're so afraid that, well, if we don't get it right, we should have another wall. That, it's like when you go to a jail, you know how sometimes there's two walls? Like, well, they get over the first one, they won't get over the second one. And it, you're, it's silly. I don't actually know like how successful like it is, but... They, they build two walls. And all these Jews are like, the Pharisees are in here. This is their life. They like love it and they're great. And then they just look down on everyone else. But then you're, you're a normal Jew and you're like, well, I mean, I've done all these things, but they're saying I need to fast three times a week now. I thought I only had to fast like two days a year. And they're like, well, you don't fast enough. So now you're out here. And you're just playing this whole game. And the whole, the whole time, is there any freedom in that? Is there any joy in that? No. Unless you just, I don't know, weirdly like walls. But there's, there's nothing. And, and so what I want to ask you and what I want you to look at is what type of community is Jesus creating? Because I would argue that he came to get rid of the original structure that God had created because God cares deeply about relationship. So let's get into this here. This is chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. In case you're wondering, that's the author, which is pretty cool. He's got his little cameo here. Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said to him. So he got up and he followed him. As Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. Now, if you were here a long time ago, 25 weeks ago, we were in Matthew 1, 
And uh, I talked about Matthew and how he was what is called a portator, which is a tax collector, or even maybe a customs collector would probably be more accurate. There's two types of ways they collected taxes and customs on like imports and things like that. And, uh, and so Matthew here is basically a Jew. He's his own people, but then he's basically robbing them and taking money for himself. It's a very corrupt business. And so uh, what Rome had done, which was pretty brilliant, was they would take over these cities, but instead of shifting the culture and, and, and people being mad about it, wanting to create anarchy, all these type of things, they would do what they call puppet or subjugate these cities. So they would take them over and they would let them rule their city as Rome ruled over them. So Herod, this is very historical, but Herod Antipas, we've talked about, he's the ruler right now of these, this area. And what that means is he is the Jew who's like a ruler and the Jewish people respect him, but he's not really, a, he's just a puppet. Like they're pulling all the strings, they're making these heavy taxes. And so they're, they're just getting people to believe that they're safer. Well, Matthew is a Jew, right? So he's like, he's, the lo- he's one of the locals. The city is a little bit... Uh, eclectic, but he's a local. And, but now he's, the way that he makes money is he uses the Roman force, which is insane, right? Like all these legionnaires, like just really good military, uh, to enforce the taxes. And what happens is Matthew makes his money on basically like imposing these super high taxes on all these Jewish people. And it became so bad that the common Jewish person was in debt, which is why if you read Jesus' stories, you're like, man, he talks about debt a lot. Like, is this guy Dave Ramsey? Like, what is going on? And and he's not. Everyone's in debt because the Romans just keep raising the tax levels, and these Jewish people can't afford it. And so then what happens is Matthew has to go in there, and he's still getting paid. And so they're, you know, they're breaking kneecaps because these Jewish people can't afford it. And then he would go to the synagogue beside them with their broken kneecap and try to worship together. And they're like, heck no, man. You get out of here. So Matthew is an outcast, but he has a lot of money, and he has a nice house. So I guess you, you got to figure out your priorities here. But uh, not liked. And in fact, the Romans probably don't even really like him because he's Jewish, but they, you know, they, they are his like, strong men. And so that's the culture we're living in here. Definitely considered traitors. I think, that, and, and I was trying to think of like, what's a, what's a, what is the feeling that a Jewish person would feel toward Matthew? I think the only modern equivalent would be us towards a sex offender. You just immediately are like, I don't trust that person. I don't want them to be around me. I don't want them to be in my neighborhood. I don't even want to hear what they have to say. I just, I don't like them. And, and it sounds very crass, but this is the reality that they were living in because they're watching people die, get thrown in prison, and prison was not like prison is today, much worse. And their families are being torn apart because of Matthew and because of his, his power with the Roman guards. So this guy's sitting in a tax booth, and Jesus goes up to him, and he asks him to follow him which I don't know which is more dramatic, Jesus asking him to follow him or Matthew saying yes, because Jesus' policy at this time was a bunch of Jewish fishermen who were poor who would actually have had paid Matthew. This is not a very big city, 1,500, 2,000 people. There's not like there was like a million tax collectors. There's a few, but these guys fish. They bring their fish in. They got to take cut, you know, half of it and give it to Matthew, like basically. So then, I mean, this is a, this is a tense group of people that Jesus is bringing together. Now, it, I mean, right now, you can ask a question, does this fit? Not really. Matthew is like, Matthew is like here. <laughs> you know, he's not even on the board because he's just an outcast, right? He's the worst of the worst. Jesus calls this man, and then even worse, they go over to his house for dinner, right? It's this awesome dinner party, and you see it in verse 10, right? It, not only does it say Matthew was there with him and the disciples, but they brought more social outcasts. And so if you read the, the, Corla, uh, the, um, the parallel story in Luke, they talk about um, it was a celebratory party, like a, like a huge party. And they invite a bunch of these sinners 
and which basically could mean a lot of things. It could mean people who didn't follow the rules, so people who were clearly outside of the, the purity of the, the law and also the Pharisees' laws, but it could also just mean, like, just morally not good people. Like, like if you were, had to have a party and you went to a bar at, like, 1.30 and just gathered up all those people, chances are, like, it's going to be a pretty rowdy crew, right? That's, like, what he did. He took all these people... Um, probably some crooks, some thieves, some tax collectors, some people who just like were skeevy. And they have a party with this Jesus guy and his disciples. And, and so, I mean, obviously we, we know that like if you invite over someone to your house, it's a pretty big um, honor, right? Like you don't invite just anyone randomly off the street most times to your house. Well, in this culture, it was even, it was even a greater sign of intimacy. It was one thing to be able to be invited to someone's house. It was another thing to sit down and to share a meal with them. This was essentially like saying that you were um, friends, allies. And so this is provocative in many ways. Now, I don't know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this passage. Sometimes I just, I just like, am so fascinated. I'm like, what did they talk about? Like, do you ever wonder that? Like, what did they, like, did Jesus just sit there and they're saying, like, terrible jokes and he's just kind of smiling at them? Or, like, are they just, like, they're afraid, like, if they cuss, you know, like, like, you know, lightning's going to come down. Like, I just, I was, I'm so, they, we don't get anything about it, but like, it, they're celebrating. That's all we know, right? And, um, and I just, I, I think there's got to be such tension there. But Jesus willingly sits down and he eats with this. He doesn't care about stigmas. He doesn't clearly care about the walls. And so in verse 11, then all of a sudden the Pharisees, they see this. And it says that they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. There's two things to notice here. One is they uh, don't even talk to Jesus. They talk to his disciples because I think they're probably trying to like create a wedge right in between him, right? And the second piece is that uh, they are calling him teacher, but it's essentially like sarcastic. Like, what kind of teacher eats with these people? Like, he's unclean. He's not even going to be able to go in the synagogue now and do his rule, right? So they're like, you know, the Pharisees are so caught up in this inner inner reality that they just are judging, right? So the disciples, they don't even respond, which I think is kind of funny, because they're probably wondering the same thing a little bit, right? You're going with your leader, but you're like, this is a rough crew. Like, something might happen tonight. This is crazy. And, and, and Jesus hears them, and in verse 12, this is what he says. He says, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. Now, this is actually a proverb, like it's a common statement um, that the people would kind of know. And he's obviously using a metaphor here. Physical needs are, are he's comparing them with spiritual needs. But in, in the reality of this, uh, there was a philosopher, his name is Diogenes, which is a few hundred years before Jesus. He had coined the saying, as a doctor must go among the sick, so a wise man must mix with fools. And so what, it's obvious what Jesus is saying here is, I'm a healer, I'm a restorer, I'm going to place myself around the sick. I didn't come here to just like become king, like what you thought I would, and then, and then remove myself and my place from the people who I came to reach. I don't know if you've ever felt that in your life. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you've only been a Christian for a little bit of time, but sometimes you feel this tension. I'm sure you feel it as a church plant where we're doing a million things at a time, and you're like, yeah, all these church things are great, but wait, like I'm almost removing myself from other time that I might want to have with people who aren't Christians. And you, you feel like, and, and it's very clear, Jesus to the end had never placed himself in, in positions where he wasn't still among the sick. And I think that's just such a cool realization. And the Pharisees don't care anything about that. They care more about the regulations than they do about the people and about the relationships. And I think about that, this is like a mini, let's just take a little pause here and imagine that as an application step for ourselves. 
you know, if, if, we, if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're a kingdom worker, right, we're, we're, we're helping just kind of um, allow people to see the kingdom here on earth, right, the, the reality and the goodness of Jesus in our community, in our relationships, in our, in our areas. It means that we have to place ourselves among the discouraged and the depressed. It means that we have to place ourselves among, quite frankly, annoying people. Your annoying coworker doesn't stop talking. Your, your, lo- your friend who's just super, somewhat, always has hot gossip every time. You don't know how, but they do. The, the, the family member who nobody can trust or understand or likes being around, right? You don't, like, it, it's, I must place myself there. This is what it looks like. How about even this? I must place myself among the prideful and the know-it-alls, right? The people that just act like they don't need anything from me, right? Even Glenn was saying vulnerability breeds vulnerability. The people that you're vulnerable with that give you nothing, and they just act like everything's fine. You still are placing yourself among them. What about placing yourself among the poor, the culturally different, the ethnically different? This is, this is Jesus saying so many things with a very simple action. And it is that we place ourselves among people of all different walks, all different lives, the people that annoy us. And I think if we remember his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, one of his main principles was what we call enemy love. And it's loving, loving your enemies. And I think this is it right here. Who are the people who you can't stand being around? Those are the people you have to be around. (laughs) And in that, Jesus is doing the very same thing. I can imagine their conversation. I don't know exactly what they said or how it went, but I'm sure there were times where Jesus was sitting there and was like, yeah, this isn't like the best people to be around right now in terms of what they're saying. In fact, people probably thought that about Jesus. They're like, wow, is he hearing them talk right now? I don't know if you ever felt that, but Jesus says, no, I'm I'm gonna willingly go to that. And so, Jesus snaps back at them, and I say snaps because he's reciting it in the Bible, which is just clearly their job. It's like very obvious. Um, he says, go and learn what this saying means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is basically Jesus saying, go read your Bible, which is just a great comeback, right? <laughs> They're like, we have them right here. <laughs> uh, this, is like, uh, I, I, like, this is like telling like, a PhD chemist, like, hey, go study your, your table of, uh, your periodic table of elements, you know? It's like, really? This is like my job, okay? And he just says, go learn your Bibles, basically. And he, what he's quoting is, if you're wondering, it might say in your Bible, but he's quoting Hosea 6, which is an Old Testament prophet, and it's, the verse is this. It says, for I delight in faithfulness, not simply in sacrifice. I delight in acknowledging God, not simply in whole burnt offerings, now, is God saying that these boundaries aren't important? No. He's not saying, like, hey, like, who cares, right? Just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. There's no need for anything, like, what, what your view is of me, or, you know, there, there is, like, there was, God created this sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It's not like he set it up and was like, ugh, that's bad, and just was like, eh, it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, the reality is Jesus came because we could not follow those rules, because we could not fulfill that system and so we can't just throw away, like, when, we, when he says, you know, I want mercy, not sacrifice, he's not saying I don't care about sacrifice. But what he's saying here is that we, we're prioritizing the, the walls, we're prioritizing our rigidity of our own fears and insecurities like the Pharisees had, right? They didn't want things to change. They didn't want to lose control over people. I love this one commentator, he said it like this. He said, Jesus is pointing to the danger of a religion which is all external, in which ritual demands have taken the place of love and mercy. Jesus' table fellowship, to 
to which they object is in fact the supreme fulfillment of God's desire. While in their indifference is a rebirth of superficial religion with Hosea deplored, meaning, and just a few verses later in Hosea, the subtitle is literally, if Israel would repent of sin, God would relent of judgment. Meaning, in this context of what he's quoting, okay, they're so consumed with, the, with the, the laws and the rules that they're missing the very heart of God. And God is saying, look, if you would give me your heart, I would relent of judgment. Meaning, if you would, if you would give yourself over, I would show you mercy. And the people are just not getting it. And these Pharisees are the ones who are just clearly missing the point. And, and to be honest, it's, it's, when you look at it and you read it, it's starting to come to reality. One of the Beatitudes that Jesus had spoken at the beginning of his legendary Sermon on the Mount is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will, seek, they will see the kingdom of God. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that idea is, are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Because the Pharisees, are they hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for being, being made right with God? Or are they hungering and thirsting for security, for self-security, for feeling like they're doing the right thing, for ostracizing others so they feel more secure? It's possible that the very good things you do in church are actually done with selfish desires and reasoning, and they're not, they're not giving honor to God because it's more about you than it's about him. When we worship, we even just said this in our production meeting today, you know, like, it's so, even Glenn mentioned, it's so easy to go up here and feel like you're performing, but all, all of us are worshiping. It's not about us, it's about him. And so the Pharisees had, had just so missed it. Now the second part comes in verse 14. This is another part. Now, more people come to the party. What a, what, a, what a party this was. I tell you what, this is like getting the cops called twice. Then John's disciples came to Jesus. This is John the Baptist. Uh, and asked, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't? This is a good example. <laughs> this, is, this is John's people saying, uh, you know, if, if here's the rules God created. They're like, hey, why aren't you doing this? Isn't that what, that's what we're all doing. Like, and it's like, what do you mean? You're, that's not even close to what God told us to do. There's nowhere where it says we have to fast three days a week. And John's crew was really interesting. They were very different than the Pharisees. It's another teaching another day. But they were just like simple people, just granola and, and one set of clothes out in the wilderness, just keeping it simple, right? Um, and they are frustrated because their walls are now being torn because the person they were maybe waiting for is building this kingdom that is not matching the walls of the structures that they had created, right? It makes them nervous. So you have two parties now that are mad at Jesus for what he's doing, kind of two different ways. And Jesus says this to them. He says, the wedding guests cannot mourn while the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast. There, it is very clear in other parts of scripture as well that, that Jesus expects disciples to fast. But this is not the time. And it's not the time because Jesus is the bridegroom on earth and he, this is like this wedding celebration. And he uses this illustration of like a banquet and all that type of stuff, right, towards the end in Revelation, if you read that. Um, but what he's doing here is he's kind, of, he's kind of giving you a bit of taste. He's giving you the, the, the appetizer happy hour of before the full course. Like, here I am now. This is what it'll look like. Here's a piece of it before it becomes. And so he's bringing in, like, Jesus is coming in Christmas. It's celebratory, right? It's a celebration because he's bringing the opportunity to not only get an invitation to the banquet, but experience pieces of it. And so he's saying, look, we're not here to be sad right now. <laughs> now, these guys definitely suffered while Jesus was doing ministry for three years. Let's not, let's not forget that, right? It was hard. But the joy that Jesus is coming to bring is not going to be stopped. And he's saying, look, fasting is important. 
He's like, but I'm, I'm pushing people toward a future hope right now, and that's my purpose. And so then he says this really cool, he uses two illustrations here that none of us maybe have actually done in our lives, but the first one is about clothing, the second one's about wineskins. Anybody own a wineskin? Didn't think so. I don't think Aldi uses wineskins. I think they just, they just use glass bottles. But verse 16, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth, cl- uh, clothing on an old garment because the patch will pull away from the garment and the tear will be worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skin bursts and the wine is spilled out and the skins are destroyed. Instead, they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. And that's what Jesus is getting at with these two illustrations, clothing, wineskins. Wineskin is basically just when you put wine in it, it has to, um, there's like chemical gases and things that need to release and it swells and depending on the temperature and all that. And so if you put new wine into an old one, it had already been kind of stretched to capacity and so it could burst. And basically what he's saying is like, <laughs> when I, I'm coming and I'm much greater than what you've experienced. We're going to need a new wineskin. And so what he's saying is he's, he's tearing down these walls. And, and like I said, if we remember Hosea and what he's quoting, he's not saying that, that there aren't important things that matter. The sacrifice, the, the, the heart of God in what he created is vitally important. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish all. He came to fulfill it. So we don't throw it away in the principle of it, but he says, these walls have got to go. And I imagine him saying that surrounded by all these people. It's just this like, clear visceral like image of just oh there's the walls like there's there's the people that we had put out here that we had created these walls for and and now here's the thing they don't respond well we know that how the story goes in the next few chapters they really start going at Jesus but but in that moment they're realizing they're wrong and the people that are on the inside are feeling i just imagine so incredibly insecure and so what what kind of community is Jesus creating here what kind of community? And that's, that's the question we have to think about, and that's what we have to, I think, I think as we read the Gospel of Matthew in today's world, what kind of community are we creating here? And I, I, this is a walled, a walled structure, right? And like I said, the pros are, you know if you're in, you know if you're out. If you're in, you feel safe because there's other people there. You feel commonality. You're not, there's not a lot of dissonance. The cons are you've created walls that may not honor God, which is a big deal because Jesus clearly says, well, y'all are both wrong, and here's what it looks like to be right. And so I think the better way to look at this is almost to look at it in a whole different principle. Instead of walls, which walls are built because you're afraid of something, right? Uh, we think about a well. And so if we think about Jesus as a well, he is this, he, and he uses this analogy, right? He's living water to those people. All of a sudden, if we don't have any walls, we just have people all around here with, with different trajectories, it starts to kind of make sense. Think about all the people that Jesus encounters. He encounters Pharisees, which are people who built these walls. He encounters the people who are the most social outcast. But what would seem to concern him most is, is not, not if they're in the wall, but if they're turn, turning toward him, if their trajectory is, is looking towards him. And I don't know about you, but this is incredibly freeing. In fact, when I ask people how they're doing, right? How are you doing spiritually? How's life going? How's church going? How's... Right? Like, you could respond, well, I'm not doing this thing, I'm not doing that thing. The people around me aren't doing them, I feel pretty good, right? Or you could be like, actually, 
I'm feeling really, I'm feeling really close to God, and I feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm really pointing, like my heart is going out towards him, like I'm pursuing all these things. This is legalistic, and this is, this is freedom, this is joy, and this is, this is what we need, because the reality is, you might identify more with the Pharisee in this story, but you've been the tax collector in your life. You've been the sinner who is invited to the dinner and has done some bad things, or is just lonely and doesn't have any friends, like Matthew has a nice house, but has no friends. And this is what Jesus, this is the kind of community that Jesus is trying to create. Now, now before, you're, you're probably getting a little bit stressed if you're very type A, because this is really neat. Like neat as in it's, I know where I'm at. And you're like, well, what do you do, Trey? Do you just draw some sort of like diagonal? Like, well, they gotta be, you know, in this certain range, this guy is like in trouble here, you know? Well, you know what I mean? Because you start getting nervous. You're like, well, how do I gauge my spiritual maturity? Or how do I, how do I look at those around me? How do I help them, right? And, and I, don't, I don't have this, this walled answer for you. Now, I do think there are core beliefs about Jesus that are very important, that are foundational. But in relation to, to Jesus and loving people, this is the way that he approaches people. And this is so freeing because people who are very far off from him, like the woman caught in adultery, like Matthew the tax collector, the moments of interaction that he has with them turn their gaze towards him, and it's a journey for them to be able to grow closer and closer to him. This never gives them a chance. And that is why Jesus came, because the sacrificial law was good in fulfilling sin, but people took it, like we always do, and ruined it. And this allows us to see that. So I, as, we, as we close this story, and we talk about this new wineskin, I think and when we read Jesus in these next several encounters, in the next few chapters, there's a lot of relationships he meets with. We have to focus on on this idea of what type of community is Jesus creating, and then what type of community are we creating? Is there people at our very church that we ostracize based on the way that we communicate, based on the way that we respond to people, based on the way that we live our lives? The freedom in this is, I, I think that there's, there's no better than you mentality, and, that, and that's what a church should be. Everybody up here, everybody here should be realizing, yeah, sure, maybe we've walked longer walks than other people, maybe we've had a lot more bumps in the road, but at the end of the day, we're all here, and we're all one, and we're all broken, and we all need Jesus. And I don't know about you, but this little battle between who's better and who's closer and who's more in the middle uh, and who's more safe is just rooted in insecurity of man. It's fear of man. They're all just afraid of each other and what they think of them. This is rooted in, hey, we're all striving. Is our trajectory, are you pointing your eyes toward Jesus? Hey, I see you struggling with that thing. How can we help you see Jesus in light of that? Right? Hey, you're in this really dark season. You've really cloistered off your friends. And you're way out here. How can we help you be a part of that? That's the beauty of what Jesus is doing. And so as we close, I want to welcome the band up. And um, this, is, this is why we offer what we call um, the bread and cup or communion, Lord's Supper, every Sunday, is that um, it is a reality of us all sitting here. Because you could do this at home if you have grape juice and bread or whatever. You could do this at home. But we do it, and Jesus says to do it whenever you gather because... You take this thing, and you look around, and everyone else is taking it. Those who believe in Jesus, because you're realizing we're all broken here. Everyone here, everyone has has sins that are that are capable of ruining the relationship with God, and that in the midst of that, as we take communion, that we realize that we are broken and that we need Him. So, uh, we're gonna give you a little bit of time to do that. If you are uh, someone who believes in Jesus, there's cups in the back. You can grab one of those. Um, if if we also have opportunity for you just to reflect, if you want to just sit and think about the message, we also have people in the back that would love to pray for you, as that's something we really care about too. 
And uh, the band is going to lead us in a song while you guys do all of that. And then uh, we'll stand and sing the last song together. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.